This is a wonderful scripture. I'm excited with what James has to say with it. So here we, is, here we go, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ, uh, in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks, man. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> All right. Well, see how my voice does today? Week three of laryngitis. I actually feel great. Not sick at all. Full energy. Just my voice, for whatever reason, doesn't want to cooperate after all the events of late. So we'll see how it goes. I've got almost 10 days of steroids in my body. I've got everything I'm doing this past week. I'm chatting to my family for multiple days through my phone, like this little stupid speech-to-text app or text-to-speech app. My kids are so tired of it because um, they can't talk to me. So I've been trying to do vocal rest, and I'm just thinking, man, I, just, I, I can't just keep waiting, so we'll just see how the voice goes. If it completely gives out, Shannon's ready to walk up, and I've manuscripted out my notes today. And so uh, he's ready to just walk up and, and keep reading. So, um, <laughs> all right, let's just pray. Jesus, I need you. Um, Father, we just ask that you would come and, and uh, lift us up. May we experience the beauty of your glory today. Even as we're sharing today about um, being your masterpiece, of how you use cracked vessels, broken vessels, even broken voices, for your kingdom and to, to display your works to the world. May you come and, and, and speak through this broken voice this morning. All right. Well, we're in the middle of a series called um, Ephesians on living and loving like Jesus in the midst of a post-Christian world. And as we get further into the series, you'll, you'll see the more we get in, the more why that title is so significant for this. Um, but the first half of the letter of Ephesians is all about our identity in Christ. And that's what we've been looking at so far, but what Christ has done and, and how now we are in Christ because of who Christ is and what he has done. And that we've, he's adopted us into his family that we are chosen, that we are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that we are in Christ, meaning that we dwell with Christ in the heavenly realms. Right now, that is our reality. That right now, Christ is far above all power and names and everything that could ever be named, and we are seated in Christ. And we are no longer spiritually dead, as we've talked about these past few weeks, but now we are alive in Christ because of his grace. A couple weeks ago, Steve talked about the fact that uh, this last passage of chapter 2, how we can no longer be divided, that Christ has broken the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and has brought us to be one new body, and that's Christ's body. And next week, we're going to hit chapter 3 as, as we go forward, but I want to go back and hit one verse in chapter 10 today, really zero in on, because to me, it's so significant for what Paul is doing in this letter. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, which says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul emphasizes again and again and again that our salvation is by grace and not through faith. That, or sorry, it's by grace through faith, not by works. And that Jesus made us alive and that nothing that we could ever do did a single thing to accomplish that or to add to it. That there's no work that we can do. There's, no matter how good we are, there's nothing that we can do to redeem us or make ourselves more worthy of the salvation of Christ. Now, uh, last Saturday, not yesterday, the Saturday before that, was my father's funeral. And um, 
we had nine different people share about my father. It was a, if you were there, thank you for coming. It was, it was long because somebody shared, but it was incredible. Story after story after story was shared of what an amazing man my father was. Just testimony after testimony of lives changed, marriages saved, people being led to the Lord. It was amazing. And then I gave the, the main message. And, and my message was just this, that after hearing all these people share all these incredible things about my father, I mean, it was so touching. I was in tears so many times. But my message was getting up and saying, you know, after everything that you've heard, all the incredible things that my father did with his life in service to the Lord and others. Nothing that he ever did did a single thing to add to his salvation in any way, shape, or form, right? Despite everything that he did, none of it did a single thing to move him toward salvation or to redeem himself in any way. It is purely by the grace of God, no matter how amazing or wonderful he was. And so Paul is adamant on this point in Scripture. It is not by works that we are saved. It is purely by the grace of God that he brought us from death to life. And he repeats it through so many of his books that works cannot save or add to salvation in any way whatsoever. And I just want to make sure we clarify that because of where we're about to go. We must understand that as a body. Because then let's keep reading. Starting in verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Here it is. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's, specifically, let's look specifically at verse 10 again. He says, so just after saying yet again that we are not saved by works, Paul says in the very next verse, he says, for we are God's work, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I want to look at that today. And, and, and first, again, Paul goes by saying that we are not saved by works, and he makes these three major points. One, we are God's work, or God's masterpieces, we'll see. Then number two, that we are created to do good works. And then he says that God has prepared us in advance, using the same language from chapter one, referring to adoption, before the beginning of time. God prepared us to do these good works. And so that's kind of the summary of where we're at in chapter 2, that Christ did all of it, that he brought us from death to life by his grace. He, he, he created us. He, he gave us a purpose. We are his children to know him and to love him, and specifically to be a people who do good works. So I want to look at all three of those aspects this morning as we jump in. But all of it is centered upon the fact that we were created to do good works. And it's an amazing chapter, remember, that we started back a few weeks back, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about how God, or Paul begins by taking us to the depths of our depravity. If you remember where he says that we were deserving of wrath, we were following Satan in this world, that we were walking in the ways of darkness and only gratifying the flesh, and all, the only hope we had was wrath. And then he goes to the height of heights and that Christ made us alive and seated us with Christ and because his grace for us is so great that he brings us to that highest of heights. Because of God's incredible grace, not because of works, now we are seated with him and we are in Christ. We are a new creation. And now the rest of chapters 4 through 6 is all going to be spending time looking at, now what does that life look like of good works that Christ has called us to? But I want to hit this verse in verse 10 for today. He says, but we, he calls us his handiwork. And now other translations would use words like masterpieces or, or works of art. This idea of handiwork, in fact, the original Greek word for the use there, it, it's, it's puema. 
And what that means is it's, it's basically a work of art. It's, it's like a poem, a creation, but an artistic creation, like a work of art or, or a masterpiece is the language that we are God's works of art or, or his poemas, his poems. So after saying that Christ has made them alive, Paul now says that the Ephesians are God's creative works of art, God's masterpieces. I love this language. It's so beautiful. Paul says that those who are made alive are now God's works of art, his handiwork. I mean, that's so amazing. See, all who are in Christ have been created twice. We are created, obviously, when we are born, and we are created then. But then we are recreated, he says, when we are born again. That we become his masterpiece. 2 Corinthians puts it this way in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We have been recreated in Christ. But let's just be honest. I mean, how many of us actually feel like masterpieces? How many of us feel like God's works of art? I mean, other than than Dave Gamber. We know that you believe it, Dave. But (laughs) other than most people, Dave gets it. How many of us truly believe that we are God's masterpieces or, or works of art? You know, honestly, I... I mean, this is a really hard thing to accept. I mean, the truth is, I'm quite a mess. I mean, today especially, trying to match Dave's voice and trying to become more like him. But I, I have a lot of brokenness that still impacts me today. Right? If you were here for the summer series, and I was talking about the But God series, I, I shared a lot of my brokenness. Shared the special sexual abuse of my past that still impacts me today in many ways. Shared, I mean, my struggles with anxiety. Shared... Uh, the ramifications of all these things that still impact me today, right? I, I am, it's hard sometimes for me to feel, especially today is up here, like a masterpiece, a, a great work of art of the Lord as I stand here before you. I mean, there, there's so many ways in which I could just criticize myself and say, here's what's wrong and here's what's wrong. I mean, I need to lose 40 pounds. I need to do this or that or that. Like, how can I accept these words that I am a masterpiece of God? And what about you? Maybe some of you doubt your worth. Maybe it's because of things that you've done in your past that you doubt your worth. Are you really a masterpiece? Or maybe even more so for some, it's things that have been done to us that cause us to doubt or devalue ourselves or think, yeah, I'm not. Maybe at one point I was pure. Maybe at one point I was good. Maybe at one point a beautiful canvas or a beautiful poem, but that canvas has been torn apart because of what others have done or my own responses to those things. And we feel like a, a, maybe a beautiful vase could have been there, but it's been cracked or, or broken in different ways. You know, Michelangelo, the great painter and sculptor, was once asked what he was doing when he was chipping away at this shapeless rock, this giant stone. And his response was, I'm liberating an angel from the stone. I love that phrase, right? And that's what God is doing with us. He is shaping us and molding us. Creating beauty from the midst of stones and brokenness. Joni Erickson Tata is a famous speaker. She's a woman who became a quadriplegic at a young age, a beautiful uh, Christian writer and, and speaker to others, encourages so many. And she spent most all of her entire life as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. In her book, A Place of Healing, she speaks of herself using this passage from 2.10 as a puema. A puema. And he, she says this in her book. She says, God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist or the sculptor. 
And he is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship, his handiwork. What of suffering then, she asks, something she knows. What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so that I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal heal me of every physical affliction? If I am his puma, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to trim line number two and, and brighten up lines three and five? They're just a little bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? So beautifully written, so powerful, considering the source of who's writing it. God takes all of who we are and he makes a work of art. Whether we see it that way or not, whether we beat ourselves up or not, whether we see ourselves as barely holding on and holding all the brokenness together or not. One of my favorite tales is an old Chinese tale called The Crackpot. And I want to read it. It's just an old tale and it says, A water bearer had two large pots, each hung on the end of a pole which he carried across his neck. One of the pots had a crack in it. And while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water at the end of the long walk from the stream up the hill to the master's house, the crack pot always arrived only half full. For a full two years, this went on daily, with the water bearer delivering only one and a half pots full of water to the master's house at a time. Of course, the the perfect pot was proud, and it's of its accomplishments. It was perfect to the end for which it was made. But the poor cracked pot was ashamed of its own imperfections and miserable that it was able to accomplish only half of what it was made to do. After two years of this, of what it perceived to be bitter failure, the pot spoke to the water bearer. One day by the stream, he said, you know, I'm ashamed of myself. I want to apologize to you. Why? asked the bear. What are you ashamed of? I've been able here for these past two years to deliver only half of my load because this crack in my side causes water to leak out all the way back to the master's house. Because of my flaws and my brokenness, you have to do all this extra work and you don't get the full value for your efforts, the pot said. The water bearer felt sorry for the old crack pot and his compassion, he said, as we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the pathway. And indeed, as they went up the hill, the old cracked pot took notice of the sun warming the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path. And it cheered him some, but at the end of the trail, it felt bad because as it reached, when it reached the end, half of its load was gone again. And so again, the pot apologized to the water bearer for its failure. The bearer said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? That's because I have always known about your brokenness and your flaw. And I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day while we walk back from the stream, you've watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate our master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have this beauty to grace his house. Each of us has our own unique flaws. Each of us, some may be temporary, like a voice, some may be far more significant. Abuse from the past, disabilities, sickness, ongoing things that hinder us. But in God's great economy, nothing goes to waste. And we shouldn't be ashamed of our flaws or our brokenness. 
We are created by God as his masterpiece, as his handiwork. And it's a process, and, and God is in charge of it, and we must let him be God. To let him hold the chisel and to submit to his work as he chips away and, and shapes us in, continually with his wisdom and his brilliance. And also embrace the person that he's creating us to be. Blemishes, cracks, and all. And not just call our sin, our flaw, but actually recognize he's wanting to work in us and mold us and shape us greater into the peace that he's called us to be and created us to be. Now, I've said it before, and especially this summer, I can't count the impact that I've been able to have as a result of the brokenness in my life. As a result of the, the sexual abuse in my life, those are actually things God has used to redeem in so many ways. He didn't cause them, but he's used it to redeem in so many ways and impact the lives of thousands of others. God didn't cause it, but he's surely redeeming it. And he's using the cracks and the flaws in my life in so many areas to being such a blessing to others. God is not done with us, and, and he, he won't be done this side of eternity. And that means we're growing and we're changing, and we should be increasingly becoming the people that he's called us to be. Whether we're 9 or 90, the process of chiseling and becoming the person God has called us to be never stops. We should be allowing the Lord to continue to shape us, to prune us like a sculptor with the rock, like Michelangelo. And that means we also recognize that that chisel sometimes may hurt as he kind of takes off a chunk to make a foot or to shape out something. It's not always going to feel good. It's not always giving up the part that we want to give up. But we have to let the master builder do his handiwork and create his masterpiece and to let him prune us and to embrace the fact that we are cracked pots. So are we able to celebrate that we are God's masterpiece? Amen? Are we able to submit to him, continuing to shape us and allow his work to be present in our life? And again, to not call our sins just our flaws, to say, oh, well, that's just who I am, but actually let him continue to chip away and work in those areas of life to, to become the people that he's called us to be, to bring him more glory. That is the first part, that we are called God's handiwork. And we need to hold on to that, because if we don't get that, the second part is just going to become legalism and works that doesn't actually have value. But I want to read the passage again so we get the context again. In verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So next he says here, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He says this is one of the main reasons God brought us from life or from death to life. Obviously, the central reason he does this is for fellowship with us, to relate to us, that we can be part and reconcile to him. But here he emphasizes the intended purpose of that life is that we would do good works. And it's not just here at Ephesians, it's all throughout Scripture. In fact, the whole book of Titus is basically written about this idea when Paul is writing to Titus on the island of Crete. A couple of verses from that in Titus 3, 4, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to do good works, as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. A few verses later, as he's summarizing the whole book, he says, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to do good works. Devote. A subtitle of the book of Titus could just be, Grace Leads to Good Works. And it's not just Paul that says it. I mean, Jesus says it. One example of that, Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men. And what is that light? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 
Our good works is what brings glory to the God and, and, and what causes people to see who Jesus is. So get back to where we began. Remember, our works are not what save us. And I want to say this again and again and again because it's so easy to get this flipped around. But they are the fruit of our salvation. I love how the scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, No one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works as a ground of salvation. No one did it more than Paul. However, no one more wholeheartedly insisted on good works as the fruit of salvation as well. Right? Both are there. Works are the fruit. They're not the root of salvation. John Calvin said it this way. He said, it is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies can never be alone. I once heard him say, we are not saved by faith plus works, but a faith that does work. Jesus' brother James puts it very clearly and very bluntly in his book of James. When he's talking about that, that there's no such thing of a fo- that the idea that, that there's no such thing that a, as a follower of Jesus who lives do not increasingly reflect the beauty of Jesus. So James puts it this way in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. He says, Good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in terror. How foolish, he says. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? I mean, that's intense. James is literally saying that those Christians who felt that good doctrine alone is enough, he's saying they're no better than demons. In fact, maybe worse, because at least the demons tremble before the name of God. Many who call themselves Christians, who think that all that matters is living a life trying to minimize sin and believe the right things without a life devoted to good works, the faith is useless, Jesus' brother says. So we are saved by grace to become this new creation that's marked by God's good works. We are God's handiwork, his masterpiece. And it's intended that we live a life that works out his beauty into the world. The rest of the letter of Ephesians is going to detail again and again and again, example after example of what that life looks like that he's called us to, to live in the midst of these post-Christian worlds and declare the love of Christ to the world. And these are the works, again, that the Holy Spirit produces in our life. They're not optional add-ons, but according to Paul, they are central to the purpose for why we were created and why God recreated us. And again, we're going to talk a lot more about these works in the coming months. But first, I want to address just kind of one of the, the, the natural resistances that Christians sometimes have to this passage. Because you see, so much bad Christian doctrine over the years is simply an overcorrection to other doctrine that probably took too much of a place of priority in the past. It's most bad doctrines, just constant recorrecting and overcorrecting previous bad doctrine. Minor things become major things in de- for, for decades, and then an overcorrection to the last minor thing that became a major thing, and we just keep swinging the pendulum back and forth as the body of Christ kind of in areas through decades after decade. I mean, the Reformation obviously was a massive shift from what happened with the, with, uh, during the time of the indulgence of the Catholic Church, which is obviously necessary and good. But even from that, it shifted ways to some ways that all sorts of negative things happened. The result of it is they became hyper-focused on things that weren't the main thing. And this happens all throughout church history. For decades, we just kind of re-emphasized maybe too much different things where we men miss out on core parts of the gospel. And so... Even just recently, in recent decades, the, the real focus it has been really on, on being able to experience grace and God's grace. And that's wonderful. We need that. And it was a response to the legalism of the last generation, where legalism became the chief thing. 
But the problem is in the response of that, yes, we need to accept grace. Many people have gotten to the point that just say that we are created to good works sits with people and say, oh, that's legalism. That, that can't be good because we're under the gospel of grace. Well, well, yes, but just right after he says that we're saved by grace, he says we're called to be created to do good works. And we must hold those tensions and not allow the, 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 the constant shifts of, of theology and overcorrecting to then miss out on what's actually in the gospel and get too hyper-focused on one thing. And so Paul is, is here, he's, he's saying so clearly, this is not legalism. He's saying that one, that Paul is the one who destroys legalism in the scriptures again and again and again. And we've established that we're not saved by good works. But he says this is what Christians should be known for. The way in which we practically and actually live in love like Jesus. This should be our response to receiving his amazing grace. This should be our natural response from being brought from death to life. To being recreated in Christ as a new creation. One of the best pictures I've ever seen in this is from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. An incredible film or book, depending on which way you, how you do it, but it tells the story of Jean Valjean, many of you may have seen it, who's a recently released prisoner who can't find anything to eat. He's kind of like the prodigal son at the end of his rope, hopeless and rejected. And eventually a bishop of the church invites him in and cares for him. But at night, Jean Valjean steals most all the bishop's silver and runs before he's finally captured by the police. The police don't believe a story. They take him back. And, give them, and show the silver back to the bishop. And, and when they bring him back to the bishop to confirm his crime, the most amazing thing happens is the bishop represents the heart of God. And they bring him before the bishop. The bishop amazingly says, Oh, John, you forgot the most important thing, the silver candlesticks. And he gives the most valuable item, puts it in his bag and says, You can go. In fact, I just want to show that clip. And take a drink. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. So the police leave bewildered. And the bishop tells John here, he says, you no longer belong to evil but to good, so become an honest man. John doesn't even know what to do with this much grace. Victor Hugo in the book, he says that the bishop's love filled the whole soul of this wretched man with a magnificent radiance. Just the example of Christ. And so Jean Valjean then takes his identification papers, which state that he's a convict in his old name. They declare him a convict. He tears them up. And he says in the final song, he says, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. I just want to play that quick clip because it's so beautiful. 
I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean, meaning the old dark self that was pursuing the ways of darkness. Jean Valjean is nothing now. That old self is nothing now. Another story must begin. Another poema. Another poem. Another handiwork. A new story that God is writing. And this so encapsulates the message of Paul. We'll see so clearly in this letter as we continue, but we must leave the dead life behind is what Paul is saying that we are recreated in Christ. We are a new creation. Jean Valjean is nothing now. The old self is gone. Another story must begin. A new poem, a new puema. And later in the letter, Paul is actually going to literally say, we must put off the old self and put on the new self. He's going to say this new life must be one that's marked by love. In fact, he's going to emphasize, we'll see in a few weeks, he says we must be rooted in love. Everything must be rooted in love sacrificially loving one another like Christ loved us. And Jean Valjean's story is such a, a perfect example Paul is talking about. Of, I mean, later in the story, uh, Jean Valjean takes on a new name. He's called Monsieur Madeline. He creates an innovative business. He uses his money to pour into the community. He pays great wages. He hires the poor. He cares so much for the poor that they call him father. And there's something so beautiful in Victor Hugo's description of Jean Valjean in the story that to me just echoes the kingdom of God in such beautiful ways. Because Jean Valjean goes to do the, the, the typical things that are connected with good works. And that would be caring for the poor, uh, being generous, helping his neighbors, kindness. But he also follows the Jesus way of the kingdom in ways that are, are I mean, not always seen as much. And that he pays a great wage. He uses innovation in his business. He develops the city and he's an excellent manager and a boss. And he just pours love into people. And so here in chapter 2, Paul is saying that God makes us a new creation. He gives us a new story. We are his masterpiece. He redeems us from death to life. He takes our story and he rewrites it like a new poem. This is what God is doing. And now Paul emphasized that in this new story, in this new life, it is a life that must be saturated with good works that impact the world around us, specifically in how we live and love like Jesus. And this is pretty much the rest of the book is about example and example after example of actually living and loving like Jesus. There is no understanding in Scripture of Christians that can claim to follow Jesus and not live a life that is saturated increasingly by loving and serving the world around them. There is no understanding of that understanding of Christianity in Scripture, of just believing something, minimizing sin, and saying, I follow Jesus. No, there's nowhere where you see that in Scripture. I mean, it's awesome, too, as well. I mean, here at Northview that we have the opportunities. I mean, John was just sharing this morning of of step-by-step that we have going on. And please, volunteer. We need people. We're going to be serving 100 families that are extremely low income right here in this building this this next week. It's going to be awesome, and we need other volunteers. We have things like um, uh, the opportunity to do photos with Santa and getting people involved from our community. Last year, we had hundreds of people from the community, many who don't know Jesus coming in and wanting a chance to reach them or the opportunity to adopt a classroom. This is awesome, a chance to genuinely pour into some of the most poorest kids in the area that literally live across the street from here, as we as a church can impact. And that's awesome stuff that we get to do. 
And as a church, we want to create, we're going to keep creating more and more opportunities for us to come as a body and as a community to come together to actually bless the world around us, specifically those who are hurting and those who are poor. But Paul is talking about so much more than just that here in this passage. He's not talking about events. He's talking about the central calling of being a Christian, a life, living a life that's devoted to doing good works. This should be the mark of the life of believers, of how well we actually live and love like Jesus. It must be a marked difference between those who are following Christ and those who are not. And again, this is one of the things I love about being here at Northview. And for, again, those who are new, we, my wife and I, we just moved here a couple years ago. We've been missionaries, sitting out here for years, and this is our recent home, and, and we love being here. One of the things I love so much about Northview is all the stories I hear on a weekly basis, so regular, of people actually living this out. I, mean, I can give name after name after name and story after story after story of people here in this body, many of you right here, right now, who are living lives devoted to good works, who are beautifully reflecting Jesus to the world. And I get story after story of how people are doing it in their schools, in their workplace, amongst their neighbors, and it's awesome to see. And yet, what I want to mention today or talk about is that somehow in all the polarization of the last few years and beyond that, it seems that many Christians across America have taken the position of being defined by our ideological differences from the world. The world that will know us as Christians by how we believe or what we're for or what we're against. And so much energy in this last season has gone into defining our differences ideologically from the world that it seems that sometimes little is left over to actually do the thing we're called to do, to practically go and love others. We're called to live a life of div- a devoted to good works, devoted to actually living and loving like Jesus. And not only is he asking this of us, he says right here at the end of verse 10, let's go back to that passage again. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what God has been preparing for us to do. This is his plan to reach the world. I mean, early in chapter one, he said, the form, from the beginning of, the, of time, he chose us to be part of his family. And now he's saying, and he prepared us to do these good works, to actually live this way. It's not a secondary call. It's central to the calling of God upon our lives. To care for the broken, to help the hurting, to love the unlovable, to care for immigrants and the widows, especially for the poor. There's another strange thing that's happened in many segments of American Christianity, living my whole life overseas. I've sometimes been, my my mind has sometimes been boggled by what I see as my my home country. And now coming back and, and seeing it many places. But it seems like as a reaction to maybe more progressive forms of Christianity, some Christians seem to get wary of the word justice or of helping the poor or of helping immigrants. And I understand the political reasons of why the pushback is there, but it's so central to Christ's calling. You know, it's amazing when Paul was having success reaching the Gentiles back in the book of Acts, all these Gentiles were coming to Christ and they were creating a mess in the church. And he, has to, he gets called to this huge meeting of all the apostles in Jerusalem because they are really scared of what Paul is doing. He's gone out. All these Gentiles come to Christ. They're idol worshipers. They're, 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 um, they're, they're involved in idolatry and, and sexual immorality and all this stuff. And they're scared of all these guys coming in. So they, they call Paul back to Jerusalem and say, we got to meet and do a theology check on you. We need to check up to make sure what you're doing is legit because what you're doing scares us right now. This is getting messy and it's getting weird and it's out of control. So they call Paul down to judge all the apostles, every one of the apostles is there, to judge if what Paul is doing is real. Is what he's doing among the Gentiles truly obeying the teachings of Christ or not? And and when they, after getting nervous and bringing him in for this theology check, that's called the Jerusalem Council, you can find in Acts chapter 15, Paul lays out all he's been doing and all he's been teaching. And the disciples are amazed and blown away by what God is doing. And then after listening to everything, they say, you know what? That's amazing. There's just one thing, one 
thing, literally one thing you must do. As long as you do this, it's okay. We will approve of it all, but you got to do this one thing. So what's this one thing? Of all the stuff he's supposed to focus on, the one thing that Paul must emphasize and must teach and must promote everywhere he goes amongst the Gentiles. What's the one thing? Paul retells it in Galatians chapter 2, 10 when he tells the story and he says, they only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. That's the one thing. Of all the things they could have been upset about, the only thing they were saying that of all the stuff, this is the one thing you must make central. Care for the poor. And Paul's response, of course, that's what I've been doing. Obviously, I'm going to do that. This is central to the historic Christianity of who we are. I'm not saying we don't get that, but sometimes we can get too stuck in political agendas and differences and we lose sight of who we are called to be, lives devoted to good works and helping others. So Paul again summarizes this section by saying we are God's masterpiece. We are his handiwork, his new creation of artistic beauty. We are made for a purpose. We should be demonstrating his beauty to the world through how we sacrificially serve and love others, for how we actually live and love like Jesus, living lives of generosity towards others, being generous with our time and our talents and our treasures and caring for others and reaching the lost and helping the poor and bringing meals and providing food and every other thing we're going to see in Ephesians over the next few months. And it's a perfect time of year to be reminded of this message because it's easy as we enter into Christmas for us to become rather, live lives that are rather insular, where we primarily focus on ourselves and our family amidst all the craziness and the chaos of the Christmas season. But let, not, let us not forget what Christ has called us to be, who he created us to be, a new creation with a new story that is other-centered, a story that's centered on loving others and loving Christ, living and loving like Jesus. So yes, please come and volunteer at Step by Step next week. Please come and volunteer at the other activities. Yes, but the calling of God is so much more than just going to an event. And so we must ask the Lord, what does it mean for me to live out my calling? What is it you've been preparing for me to do? Somebody like, what's my calling? We don't need to ask what the calling is. It's right here. Our calling is to live a life devoted to good works, to follow Jesus, to love him and love others, to experience his life and to love sacrificially those around us, especially the poor. It's such a wonderful bookend that Paul gives as he finishes this section because he opened chapter 2 by saying, we used to walk in darkness. But now he says he's prepared us to walk in good works. That's the literal definition, to walk in good works. It's, it's, he's intentionally showing we no longer walk in darkness, we now walk in good works. We used to walk in selfishness, but in our new story, we walk in other-centeredness. We used to walk in gratifying the desires of the flesh, by living for my kingdom, for me and mine, and now as God's masterpieces in our new story, we seek to serve Christ and his kingdom and bring glory and beauty to him through good works. Amen? Now we're going to start moving to worship here in a minute. And as we do, some of you need to remember, we are God's masterpieces. God delights in us. Do not forget that. We are God's masterpieces. He delights in us. Even in our brokenness and our cracks, God uses us for his glory. You know, I love Jimmy Reed's, Pastor Jimmy Reed's story last week, where he said that God even used this, this, what some may call a birth defect of him only having two fingers on his hand. He was saying how God is even redeeming that and he used that for his glory. And some of you just need to zero in on that this morning. That God delights in you. That you are his masterpiece. 
that you display his beauty, not in spite of your cracks, but especially through your cracks, through the weaknesses, through failures, through brokenness. All these things are on display. Because if we don't get that, then we're missing God's heart for us. And every good work that we do is out of some need for validation or performance if we don't get that we are God's masterpiece. And once we understand how deeply loved we are, we can move with pure hearts towards our central calling on this earth, this side of eternity, to live a life devoted to good works. And so as we finish this morning, I want us just to take some time just to listen to the Lord. And ask him if there's anyone or anything he's highlighting to us right this morning where we need to bring a realignment in our lives. Where maybe we've been moving insularly in this season or this last season of life. Where we talked before about being incurvatus in se, of, of that we're bent in on ourselves and the world is becoming increasingly us-focused. What might the Holy Spirit be speaking to us this morning of what it means for us to move more towards others? What might the Holy Spirit be speaking to us as our families to realign our hearts and our lives to practically and specifically and actually increasingly live in love like Jesus? You know, maybe there's a person that's been on your heart for a while. You've not actually taken a step and it's time to just listen to the Lord and say, yep, I need to go help him. Maybe it's a, a recent widow who could use a friend. Maybe it needs a family meeting time as a family to gather together and talk about what does it mean for us to realign our priorities as a family or maybe it's just having a a toy giveaway as a family and have the kids go find the toys they don't use anymore and go bless others with them. Maybe we need to repent of selfishness and take steps to reorder our lives. You know, it's a small realignment. Maybe you've been so selfish, it requires a massive one. But let's just go to the Lord and ask about that. And for some of you this morning, maybe it's also just a celebration because rather there's so many that are just rocking this right now. So many of you have been such an example of this for so long. And I thank you for what you're doing. And I just receive the pleasure of God as you sit and listen. Don't want to beat yourself up. This isn't about trying to find stuff wrong with us. But listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying his calling on our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you. That you brought us from death to life. that you took our brokenness, you reshaped it, you redeemed it, you restored it, and you wrote us a new story, a new poema. And you continue shaping us. And thank you, Jesus, for that you're not giving up. For those that are struggling with their own self-worth, Lord, this morning, I pray, Jesus, may you speak your words of truth this morning. That they are your masterpieces, works of art that you are using for your beauty and your glory. And Lord, may we also be able to listen to you of our calling to live lives devoted to good works. So right now, we're going to spend just 30 seconds. And Holy Spirit, right now, we just say, speak to us. Encourage us, Lord. Where would you have us realign or move or maybe just sit and celebrate? Thank you, Jesus.